So the topic for the night is preparing the mind to realize emptiness. First thing I want to address is why, why does emptiness matter? Why does the teaching of emptiness matter? And what are we talking about? <laughs> so one, one teacher, he said, if you were asked to identify a central concept that was most important for the development of Buddhist teaching over time, it would be emptiness. Um, it's certainly been important for the development of Zen. But what, what are we talking about? What are we talking about in terms of emptiness? If anyone was here for May's talk last week, you got a, got a, a good dose of this. It's a challenging topic, so it's worth, it's worth touching on again. In its earliest presentation, emptiness uh, is maybe much less exotic than it sounds. It just, it, it's a descriptive noun that simply means empty of something. Emptiness is just the quality of being empty of something. The way that uh, an empty room is empty of furniture, a, uh, an uninhabited forest is empty of people, and the, the space around you if you look around right now, the, the space around you is empty of visible physical form. There's no forms in the space. So it's just that simple. It's empty of something. But why it's so important is that it represents both, both a path and uh, a description of the goal. That emptiness can be the way that we make our way toward the goal of Buddhist practice and it represents the goal of Buddhist practice, which is ourselves being empty of um, those things that cloud over the heart. It's being free of these things, empty of these things, with and for all beings. It's a pretty beautiful possibility. So let's talk a bit how, about how we realize it. The, the, the way I want to approach this, I want to, I want to go at it in two ways. Um, First is that we can directly, intuitively, immediately experience emptiness. And we're going to do a little bit of that. And then the second part is that we, we take a taste like that and we develop it and we mature it. It grows with us over time. We can sense freedom now and then we can grow more free. That's the notion. So I want to get right into, right into an exercise to sort of ground this. And that is, um, it's going to be a sort of contemplation. So if you, if you want to, whatever posture you want to do contemplation in. And I'm getting a message from a medical device that is on my iPhone. So I'm going to address that just briefly. Okay. What I'd like to do is, a, it's a practice that uh, comes from the Book of Serenity. It's this uh, koan collection in our tradition. So Yangshan says, the thinker is the mind and the thought of is the environment. In the environment there are mountains and rivers, landmass, Buildings, towers, halls, chambers, people, animals. Basically, he's listing all experience. Everything that we can experience in our awareness. 
And then he, then he gives his instruction. Reverse your thought to think of the thinking mind. Be aware of awareness. Know this function of knowing directly. Reverse your thought to think of the thinking mind. Then he poses a question. Are there so many things there? We can stop there and so work our way slowly through this. In a meditative space in which we're sensitive, sensitive to objects, let's say, sensitive to a focus, right there in the same experience is also the knowing of that experience. They come right up together. We can be confident in this because we have a memory of something. Right here in the snap of my fingers, you hear a sound, and now you have a memory of that sound. You have the memory because you knew, because there was some mental processing going on in that moment. There's both the physical thing and your knowing of it. So what Yangshan is pointing to is leaning into that aspect of experience, which is simply the knowing, simply the knowing of experience. And then as you incline your mind, which I, I invite you to do, you can sort of pose questions to yourself non-discursively to investigate this, this function of knowing. Is there anything that you can get a hold of that you can point to and say, ah, yes, this is the knowing? Is there any substantial thing there? Is there anything fixed? Is there anything you can call a self? Or any of the thoughts that come by that are known? The thoughts are known, but they're not the knowing themselves. themselves. And then this basic question, is knowing adhered to anything? it stuck to anything. So it's this, it's this basic sense, this basic sense of touching into, tuning into this aspect of experience that knows the objects that are known. And seeing the, seeing the fact that it's not, it's not adhered, it's not stuck. So you're welcome to relax and open your eyes if you have them closed. So you can get a sense of this sort of straight away. It, um, just doing the exercise has a certain, certain like perfume of the mind, whether or not you land on anything and you're like, ah, totally got it. I know exactly what knowing is about. Um, but it's more like, what, is the, what does the exercise do? Sort of develops it. If we look, at a bit, look a bit more closely, we interrogate our experience, we come to this question of, our experience is empty in what way? It's empty in what way? May covered a, a couple of important aspects in the Dharma. One is that our experience is empty of any fixed permanent self. When we interrogate our, 
our body and our mental structure, our physical structure. We don't find anything permanent that we can say, oh yes, the fingernail of my pinky is myself. The sights that I see are myself. The sound is myself. There's nothing we can land on that stays. So this applies to us and it applies to things. She talked about how uh, things are empty of a fixed essence. But I want to I summarize this in a little bit different way and sort of ca call out a trio of emptinesses that uh, we can sort of recognize and develop the perceptions of. So these are, first, the things in our experience, the objects, the focus, the things in our experience, they're empty of imputation. They're empty of our ideas of them. The thought is not the thing. My favorite example of this is that my thought of my mom is not my mom. Um, you can get a little closer to home and you can close your eyes if, and imagine a picture of your face and see it pretty clearly. And you open them and the question, can you see your own eyes? A thought is not the thing. Your direct actual experience of this body and mind doesn't include your ideas of it. This is represented well by the Heart Sutra in the Zen tradition. No eyes, no ears, no nose, it says. Puzzling, puzzling because we have these things. Eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, mind. But in the, in the direct experience of this lived being, it's almost like we have no head. It's just not even there. So the thought is not the thing, empty of imputation. Second thing is that the, the world of our experience is empty of isolation. So nothing, nothing arises except by everything else. Everything in experience arises based on the conditions of everything else. The classic example made so popular by Thich Nhat Hanh is that a piece of paper arises dependent upon a tree and the rain and the sun uh, and the air. One Zen teacher says you pull one thread and you pick up the whole universe. Everything comes along. Everything's connected. Said a bit more poetically a long, long time ago, this uh, Zen teacher named Chongsha said that the entire world of the Ten Directions is a practitioner's everyday speech. And the entire world of the Ten Directions is a practitioner's entire body. Our, even our body is intensely conditioned by everything that is. What this means though, or one of the ways we can, we can interpret it and actually take refuge in this fact is that we're all supporting each other all the time, even if it doesn't seem to be so. There's a way, there's a way that this flavor of emptiness actually connects us. It's not to say that uh, loneliness never arises. Certainly it does, but um, even our emotions arise dependent upon other conditions. And our, our emotions, if you pull the thread of them, they're connected to everything else. And so is our care for them. Mm. So this flavor of emptiness, this empty, empty of isolation, 
emphasizes this fact that, the fact that you and I are not fixed things. We're not static. We're in, we're in this state of constant flux with each other. You're hearing my words and something is changing in you. I'm seeing you and something is changing in me. And then this third notion, that awareness itself is empty of hindrance. In the teachings of this, of this lineage, we can, uh, we can regard awareness as like a mirror. It's a teaching called the jewel mirror samadhi. Awareness being like a mirror that simply knows and it doesn't grasp. There's this functioning that's happening that's happening in our, in our experience all the time, all the time. What's fascinating about it, we don't do it. Like, try to stop being aware, just go ahead. We don't do awareness, we can't turn it off, we can't control it. Um, and in the absence of these things, it's really hard to say that awareness is I, me, and mine. It's really hard to say it's us, that we own it, we control it. But it's happening all the time, and it's this fundamental aspect of our experience. It's pretty amazing. So it, it's free of hindrance, it's empty of hindrance in its simplicity. The fact that mere sense contact, just a sense organ meeting a sense object and the knowing of it, happens before, in time, all sorts of mental complications that include every variety of suffering, every, every variety of pain and discontent. Before any of that arises, there's this mirror-like knowing. And there's something there that can teach us something about what it means and what it is to be free. I find that inspiring. And that it's always around. That's amazing. So, I think Dongshan, one of our, one of our ancestors, points us in this direction toward ac accessing that aspect of our experience that's totally unentangled. Uh, in, his, in his teaching where he says, the, the oh, when erroneous imaginations cease, the acquiescent mind realizes itself. When erone erroneous imaginations cease, the acquiescent mind realizes itself. That is to say, when everything that's a complication that comes along has a chance to settle, then what's here, this sort of mirror-like awareness, this mirror-like knowing, is what stands out. This is one of the ways that zazen functions. We sit still in the presence of here and now, with our body, with our mind, just settled here. And slowly, 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 the complexity of our mental activity starts to unwind, unravel. And what comes forward? What comes forward is something much more simple and much more free. So Zen practice on the whole is traditionally oriented toward just this aspect of our experience that is um, fundamental, fundamental and free, that is empty of our ideas, 
It's empty of isolation and it's uh, empty of hindrance. You can deepen the, deepen the practice of sort of glimpsing in that direction by taking a look, like tur turning, the, turning the attention in that direction or like leaning in a sense, relaxing into just simply being aware. And then you can start uh, investigating. You can bring in just a smidge of curiosity or investigation and look along these lines. Is awareness hindered? Is it isolated? So on and so on. So this is pretty particular. And um, I think it raises the obvious question of, uh, it's like, how does this help me in everyday terms, <laughs> right? It's, um, it's, a, it's pretty sensible. How does this help me? When I was reflecting on this, it occurred to me, uh, like something touched me when I posed the question of, oh, how does this help me? My answer was, oh, it helps others. It helps me because it helps others. There's this um, ancient teacher, Shanti Deva, who wrote, kind of wrote the book on the path of Mahayana Buddhism, out of which Zen grew. The first thing he does after honoring awakening is pay homage, pay homage to compassion. He wrote the book for others. And it's the aspiration of Zen practice to wake up. Like we wake ourselves up, we do, but we do it with all beings. And we do it for all beings. Compassion is just this fundamental level in Zen practice. This was brought home to me uh, this weekend. There was, a, there was a guiding teacher installation ceremony at a, a temple in the South Bay. And they, uh, they quoted actually the abbot ceremony that happens here. And I'd not seen this detail before. I wonder if it happens behind closed doors. So I'm telling you some secret apparently. And it is that sometime during the process, they say to the incoming abbot, um, how do you care for the community? And the response is, I care for, my, I care for the community by caring for myself. And then they ask, how do you care for yourself? And the abbot responds, I care for myself by caring for the community. Can't pull these apart. Can't be isolated. In other terms, if we're thinking about how the practice of emptiness affects us, one of my favorite very short stories from the, from the ancient discourses. Venerable Sariputta is uh, one of the chief disciples of the Buddha. And he comes out of an evening of meditation and he, uh, or comes out of a day of meditation. Buddha sees him in the evening and the Buddha says to him, Sariputta, your faculties are clear. The color of your skin is pure and radiant. What abiding, what meditation do you often dwell in now? And addressing the Buddha, Sariputta answers and he says, now, venerable one, I often abide in emptiness. And the Buddha praises this response. So in some ways we're tapping into this, uh, this tradition of 
touching into emptiness, abiding in emptiness. And apparently it had an effect on Sariputta in which it was visible. It's like he was brightened. Faculties were clear. In more modern terms, I think of it this way. The practice of tuning into emptiness and then maturing that view through practice, for one thing, it refreshes. It refreshes the mind and it refreshes the heart. Um, I recently got a new laptop. Ever had a new, when you get a new laptop and it's like there's no gunk on it, there's no gunk in the OS and it runs so much faster and your whole life feels lighter, it's kind of like that. That's what, that's what emptiness is like. Empty of gunk. Second thing, it, practice of emptiness and then maturing it. There's palpably less friction in experience. So internally and externally. The example I think of is, say you're having a really delicate conversation. If you're under the sway of the maturing practice of emptiness, the, I find in the people that I see this really grow in, less defensiveness, less need to protect myself, less manipulation, less maneuvering. And I think this is all based in, in the understanding that really gets its way in there, that what's happening here, it's not personal, it's not a self, and it's really okay. And then the third thing, it's this sort of radiance, this Sariputta radiance, that's connected very, very closely to a responsiveness of the heart that's quite beautiful. And what that looks like is a sort of natural welling up. There's a way that touching into emptiness and maturing it creates this, this like open door for goodwill and benevolence and compassion that just like fills, fills the body and fills the space. Um, and these are the sorts of inner dispositions that are then borne out in beneficial speech and skillful action and harmonious types of thinking. It influences the way we are in the world. So may we all be, be de-gunked by the practice of emptiness. So the way that it influences our, our body, our speech, our mind, our actions, our way of being in the world I think we point to this every week when we chant the loving-kindness meditation, our liturgy, which we did here last week um, in a, memor a combination memorial and well-being ceremony for the violence that's happening in the Middle East right now. And Paul Ryushin came onto the tatami and gave a brief formal statement. And all that I remember, I was, I was just so touched he walked on and he said, never underestimate the power of benevolence. I don't know how far it reaches, but uh, something about that gives me uh, encouragement and a little bit of hope. So there's several approaches to realizing emptiness. There's this Yangshan practice. There's like the slow analysis of like leaning in, relaxing into awareness. There's a sort of heart sutra practice where you can look at your, 
six senses and find your way into emptiness there. You can look, look at the aggregates for those who are studied in the aggregates and see that they are not a self at all. In other ways, we talk about stilling the mind and then seeing. And then there's this Yongshan style bear Zen vision of just pointing directly at it. It's sort of the twist of the question of how do we prepare to see emptiness? How do we prepare to realize emptiness? And uh, I offer this kind of playfully when I was um, to one of the Dharma centers I lived in, there was someone who was a really good cook. He would always make Pollock paneer every time he cooked. And it was delicious. And so I said to him, like, Heen, how, how do you do this? How do you, how do you make Pollock paneer? I really want to learn. He was like, he looks at me, kind of squints, and he goes, you just do it. <laughs> I was like, Heen, thank you, that doesn't help. He didn't change his story. You just do it. So that kind of seems to be what Yangshan is after. He's like, oh yeah, there's this, there's this, and you just point to awareness. That may or may not be so. That may or may not be so. There's a way that that can work. And then there are also these sort of like articulations of the path that develop over time. And one of these, which I'll just say in brief, is the six perfections, the six paramitas. It's like the, it's the long game for the bodhisattva practice. We start, where we start with giving, ethical conduct, patience, energy, meditation, and then wisdom. It's like you take all the conditions, these five conditions, and then you realize emptiness in the end. So in closing for the moment, One set of teachers summed up emptiness this way. They said it's, in its simplest sense, emptiness means a mind that is temporarily free of self-obsession. And in its deepest sense, it refers to the unsurpassed freedom of an awakened heart. And what I'm proposing is that we can, we can intuit our way to this by leaning into Awareness, leaning into knowing that free process of knowing. And then we mature it over time. And of all the goodness that arises, I have one thing, one thing to offer you, and that is uh, to please don't postpone goodness. Um, Bhikkhu Bodhi, Bhikkhu Bodhi, to paraphrase him, more or less said, you don't have to wait for full awakening. You don't have to wait for complete Buddhahood in order to bring goodness into the world. You can, you can do it today. You can do it right now with your action and your speech and your thought. And we can support this process by seeing goodness in others that nourishes something in us and models something for us. So I think it's part of the, the ache that I feel for the world right now, that I, I want to pray, please, bring some goodness into the world with your, your intentions and your actions. Yeah, may it be so.